morning, everyone. How are you today? In this, uh, I'm doing good, thank you. <clears throat> In this message series, we are considering the unique assignments that God has given to us as a church. And we're calling these assignments God Dreams. And here's the working definition of a God Dream. It is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and then is given to us. Now, we all dream about the future, but church is the unique place where God invites us to dream his dreams and then to work together to see those dreams become reality. Now, whenever God gives us a vision of the future, it is presented inside of a frame. It has limits to it. And that's important because while God dreams are, of course, big, we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of what he is uh, wanting to accomplish in the future. And the frame that has the doable limits has four sides to it. The first side of this frame uh, we call our mission. And our mission just simply answers the what question. What is it that God has called us to do? What are we doing? And it's just a simple statement, sentence, that keeps us focused and on track with the mission God has given us. Here's our sentence, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. That's everything that we're about can be pointed to that one sentence. The next side of the frame is our values. And this answers the why question. Why are we doing this? God is not interested just in what we do. He's also very interested in our motives. Why are we doing this? And here at Seabreeze, we have five big whys, five motivations that continue to energize and drive us as we move forward. Now, the next side of our vision of the future is our strategy. This answers the how question. How are we going to go about doing this? If we don't have a strategy or a plan, then the dream or the mission is just going to be a set of words. Strategy is the pattern of behavior that tells us how we're going to accomplish the mission. It's a set of behaviors that are very clear and very doable. And so we looked at these last week, four behaviors here at Seabreeze that just gives us traction as we try to accomplish what God wants us to do. Now today, we're going to turn to the last side of the vision frame for us as a church, and that is our measures, our measures. This answers the when question. When are we successful? How do we know if we're actually doing what God wants us to do? Is this success or not success? At the 2004 Summer Olympic Games in Athens, Matt Emmons was just one shot away from another gold medal in that Olympics in the 50-meter rifle competition. Now, he was so far ahead at the time he lined up for his last shot that all he needed to do was hit the target, just anywhere. He didn't need a bullseye, he just needed to hit the target. And so he fired, and he watched his bullets score yet another bullseye. But the scoreboard didn't light up. And so he turned in confusion to protest the malfunction. Here he is turning in confusion to look to the score table and say, I hit a bullseye. What's wrong with uh, the score um, apparatus? But it turns out it wasn't a malfunction. He'd hit the wrong target. While standing in lane two, he had aimed and fired at the target in lane three. This is called crossfire. Pretty rare, especially at the Olympic level but it happens. And so instead of gold medal, he finished eighth, eighth place in that competition. So his dream of yet another gold medal came crashing down. Now, 
I say this because it's possible for us to do the same thing with a God dream. Well, we can be very, very clear on what the mission is that God has given us. We can be clear on the, the values that support that mission and on the strategy to accomplish that mission. But then when it comes to lining up and measuring whether or not we are succeeding in that mission, we can just aim at the wrong target and miss the mark. So the question I want to address over the next few Sundays is, what are we aiming at? What is the target? How can we measure whether or not we are succeeding in the mission that God has given us? Now, we could aim to, say, increase the number of people attending Seabreeze on a Sunday. If we keep serving pancakes and bacon every Sunday, we might be able to accomplish that pretty rapidly. <laughs> but that's sometimes churches just say, well, that's success. If, if there's more people coming around, that's success. Now, that's a good thing, but that's just one target. Or maybe we could say, you know, no, I, I think success would be increasing the size of our budget, which would allow us to increase the amount of good that we do in this community and beyond. And so success will be measured, then if, if the giving is going up, then we are succeeding. But while those two numbers, how many people are attending on a given Sunday and what the budget is, those are important, they don't really get at the heart of how a church is doing. I mean, if someone walks up to you this morning and says, how are you doing? And in response, you tell them, you know, your height and your weight and no more, they're going to be surprised. That's not what they were asking. Now, those two numbers are true of you. But when someone says, how are you doing? They're, they're not looking for an external measurement. They're asking, what's going on inside? How are, you, are you okay? And similarly, when, when we ask this question about a church, there's much more that can and should be said about a church like ours than just how many people are attending on a Sunday and what's the size of our budget. And the reason is because Jesus didn't come to earth just to gather an ever-increasing large crowd or just to produce balanced budgets. No, Jesus came here to change hearts. That's what he's interested in. And so God looks at our hearts to see how we're really doing. So what then is the target that he wants us to be aiming at? Well, it's stated throughout the Bible, but one of the summary statements is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Here's what we read. For the entire law, all of God's requirements written in the Old Testament portion of the Bible is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, last week we looked at what Jesus had to say about this, and Jesus said, really, this is kind of a two-sided coin, this love thing. It, it requires you to love God with everything that you are, and that anchors and is the foundation of your ability over time to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate these two. They're linked together. So God's big question is this, are you loving those around you? What is the quality of relationship that you are offering to the people that I have placed around your life? That's the question that God is asking. That's the target of you individually and of us as a church. But in our culture, the target of love has, has become pretty fuzzy and pretty large, so it's really not clear what it is we're supposed to aim at. At the Grammys a couple of weeks ago, Alicia Keys, who was the host, came out on stage by telling the audience, I love you all so much. Now, I don't know, Staples Center, maybe 18,000 or so. That's a lot of people to love. And in response, the crowd just cheered. Apparently, they loved her too. And so she went on several times during the opening to say, do you feel the love in this room? And the crowd just went wild. Apparently, they did. But 
when you stop to think and ask this question, what does that really mean? Alicia Keys loves everyone in that room. I mean, how is that even possible? There's no way she could even know the names of most of the people in the Staples Center crowd. And I would think that they know her mostly by her music, but they haven't probably met her personally. So how could they really love her or she love them if if they've never even really met? Well, we all know what she meant and what the crowd meant, and that is that they felt the love. That's what she said. You feel the love in this room. And they all felt something good and called it love. But in the Bible, love is much clearer than that. There are emotions, but that's not the fundamental quality of love. Love is a very specific set of targets that we are to aim at. Now, here at Seabreeze, we've grouped these targets into three categories. How we, first of all, relate to others. This is kind of the one-on-one relationship. How we team together, how we work together with each other. And then how we share the good news of the gospel, of God's love for other people. And so if we are being transformed by Christ, that is our mission, this is where it's going to show up. It may show up in the attendance on Sunday. It may show up in the giving. But that's not our biggest concern. Our biggest concern is that it shows up in the way we love. Transformation will be demonstrated in the way we relate to others, team together, and share the gospel. Now, today we're going to consider four targets of love that are under this first grouping of how we relate to one another. This is a one-on-one, me and you, you and me, and you and someone else level of love. The next Sunday, we're going to look at the three targets under what it requires to team together in a way that really loves each other. And then lastly, the three targets under share of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, if you've been around Seabreeze for a while, you will recognize the four targets that we're aiming at under the way we relate to others. They are the first four of the seven attitudes that we call the heart attitudes. And the heart attitudes are just simply a summary, a list of a summary of what the New Testament says love looks like. First of all, in one-on-one context, and then when we team together in groups. Now, these first four that describe how we relate to one another, they form the, the foundation of trust that is essential for every relationship. Every relationship is built on the foundation of trust. If trust is broken, the relationship begins to destabilize and eventually breaks. And these four targets that we're aiming at in a one-on-one context, they require a tremendous amount of courage. And that's because people are never neutral recipients of love. People hurt us, and they wrong us. And so we often form relationships that are really more like deals than they are loving relationships. And that is, if, if you love me, then I will love you. But these are independent of how people are treating us. And it requires tremendous courage to keep loving in these ways. Now, we all want to love. And I think most of us really intend to love. But it turns out in a difficult environment where this is not a friendly world that we live in, it's a broken world that we live in, love just isn't enough to want to do. We have to have a clear target, and we have to keep practicing at doing these. None of us do these perfectly. We don't hit a bullseye every time we aim at these four, but over and over and over again, 
we line up and we try to accomplish things. So here's, here, here they are. First, if we're going to love each other, we will aim to put the goals and interests of others above our own. That's a very practical definition of what love does. It puts the goals and interests of somebody else above my own. We read about this in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, are you drawn to trust somebody who's full of selfish ambition? Probably not. Ambition, maybe, but not selfish ambition. Why not? Well, if their big drive in life is to advance themselves, what that means is that they have no real honest interest in you. You are either helping them or hurting them to get what they want. And so their interest in you will last only as long as you are useful. You may feel loved by them. They may treat you really well, but it's just because you are a useful part of what they really want. You're a means to an end that they have. And if you make the mistake, intentionally or unintentionally, of somehow getting in the way of what they really want in life, they're going to make you pay a price for it. And so in an environment of selfish ambition, what happens is people don't really love. They, they form deals, they form temporary arrangements, but they act fundamentally in their own best interest. It's every man, woman, and child, if this is the family environment, for themselves. And the reason is because you, you can't turn your back on people because they're in it for themselves. Well, how about vain conceit, the next description in this verse? Would you trust a person who thinks that they are better than you? That's what vain conceit does. You wouldn't be wise to trust that person. Why not? Well, if they think that they are more important than you, then it's only a matter of time before they can justify, again, using you for their own advantage. So you can't risk turning your back on someone like this. So these are the two things that continue to undermine trust in one-on-one relationships, selfish ambition and vain conceit. But just as these two destroy trust, the opposite attitude builds trust. What's the opposite attitude towards each other? Humility. What is humility? What does that look like? We're given a very practical understanding of humility, what humility does. It treats someone as if they are better. You consider others better than yourself. Now, let's be clear. They aren't better than you. Now, they may be better than you in accounting, or they may be better than you in a particular athletic activity or in a job But no one has more value than anyone else. We're all made in the image of God. We have equal standing and value before God. So no one is truly better than you, and you're not better than anyone else. But in humility, that is the decision to set aside whatever you want at this moment so that you can help someone else accomplish something that they want. That's what humility does. For that moment... Not all the time, but for that moment, you decide to set aside your interests and put their interests above yours. This is the attitude we are told that Jesus had. And therefore, if we're going to follow him, this is the approach that we need to take one-on-one in relationships. 
Jesus did this all the time. He would consider others to be more important than him. Now, of course, they weren't, but he would treat them like they were. By setting aside whatever his agenda, whatever he was accomplishing in that moment, he would pause and he would stop and he would address something that was of interest to them. You know, in Luke chapter 19, for example, everyone overlooked a man named Zacchaeus because while he was short in stature, both physically and morally, but Jesus didn't overlook him. Jesus spotted him in a tree trying to get a glimpse at Jesus as he passed, and Jesus stopped, looked up into the tree, engaged him in a conversation, and then went to his house to offer Zacchaeus forgiveness. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus tried to get away for some rest from the crowds, but they followed him. They'd spent, he and his disciples had spent days uh, helping, and Jesus would heal the sick that had come, and, and now they were just exhausted, and Jesus said, we need to go to the other side of the lake and, and, and get a break. But then they got to the other side of the lake, and the crowd had come around the other side and were there waiting for him. I mean, this is kind of like you've been working really hard for a long time, and finally you got a week of vacation in Hawaii. You get off the plane in Hawaii, and there's your boss waiting for you. That's what this was like. All the disciples were, no! But Jesus said, hey, let's set aside our interests, our needs, and let's serve, let's help. I'm going to heal some more people. And then, near the end of the day, the disciples said, hey, these people are hungry. We've got to send them away. And Jesus said, this is a remote place. There's no place to eat. And so Jesus went ahead and did the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and gave them food. In John chapter 13, we looked at this story last week, if you were here. Jesus and his disciples sat down for the last supper together just before his arrest and crucifixion. And no one was there for some reason to wash their, the disciples' feet. And so who did it? Well, Jesus did. Now, this is what he did over and over again. And it doesn't mean that Jesus would do whatever anybody wanted him to do. Jesus wasn't a doormat that people could just walk over. But what it does mean is that he would often pause, consider the needs, the interest of someone else, and then he would personally sacrifice to help them with those needs. The ultimate example, of course, is his decision to sacrifice his own life on the cross for all of us. And so now as his followers, we are to adopt the same attitude. Now, we don't ignore ourselves. That's why it says not only your own interests. The assumption is you're probably doing something for yourself probably a lot for yourself. What this is saying is, why don't you take a break from you for just a moment and just consider somebody else. Just try it for five minutes. Just just try that and see if you can help them. That's what love looks like. Now, the fear, the reason this requires courage is the fear is that if we don't focus all of our interests on us, who's going to look out for us? The truth is, we are most interested in us more than anybody else. And if we set that full-time job aside to even part-time help someone else, then we're going to go with our needs unmet. But what happens over time is that as we love people, God helps us. He comes alongside, and he helps us. Now, our culture says, well, no, you can help other people, but first you've got to take care of yourself, and then with what's left over, then you can help other people. The problem with that is, I'm a big job, and you're a big job. 
And by the time you address all of your needs and all of your wants, there's just there's no scraps left for anybody else. That's just the way it tends to work. So we, we aim to put the goals and interests of others above our own. And then secondly, we aim to live an honest and open life. Ephesians 4.25 says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Why? Well, we're all members of one body. We think of the church maybe as a building or as a human organization, and those are some of the expressions of church, but God thinks of the church primarily as the body of Christ, as the visible representation of the body of Jesus Christ here on earth. One example of this is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 28. It says, now you are the body of Christ. He's speaking to a gathering of Christians in the church in Corinth. He said, you're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a body part. You're a part of the body of Christ. Now, this isn't just some spiritual, invisible idea, analogy. No, the very next sentence says, and in the church... God has appointed. So he just said, you're the body of Christ. And in the church, God has appointed. You see this over and over again in the New Testament. The term church and the phrase body of Christ are interchangeable terms. You can switch one for the other because they're referring to the same thing. Now, as you think about it, this is a very profound application. What this means is you cannot follow Jesus Christ apart from a church. That's just a foreign idea in the New Testament. It can't be done. Think of it this way. If, if you were um, alive when Jesus was walking on the earth and you were maybe one of the disciples following Jesus, and one day you decided at a particular intersection of the road that, that you were going to take a right instead of go ahead with Jesus and the rest of the disciples. And the other disciples turned to you and said, where are you going? And you said, oh, don't worry. I'm still going to follow Jesus. What would they say? Well, but... Jesus' body is going this way, and you're going east. We're going north. You can't say you're following Jesus when you're walking this way, and he's walking that way. But you see this kind of thing happen all the time now. People saying, I, I follow Jesus Christ. I just don't have anything to do with the church. It's like, well, but that's his body. You, you can't follow somebody without actually following their body. You have to be a part of the church somewhere. Now, in a body, truth between the body parts is absolutely critical. The body requires all the parts telling the truth to each other. What happens when parts of your body start lying to each other? Well, it's called a neurological disease. You know, the messages that are sent through the body are delivered by the nervous system. And if the messages are inaccurate, that can cause a lot of problems. It can cause death. Eighteen years ago, my brother-in-law died of a neurological disease called Guillain-Barre. He was an assistant DA in Manhattan. On his way home on the subway, felt tingling in his fingers. And by the time he got home, he was completely paralyzed. He lay in a hospital bed for three months. Many people recover from this disease. He did not. He died three months later. And what this disease does is the immune system mistakenly thinks the nerves are a foreign infection that must be attacked. 
and it just turns on the body. It attacks. It believes a lie. Th those are nerves. They're not, it's not a bacteria. It's, it's not a virus. It's a nerve, but it attacks, thinking that it's not. So just one lie like that in a physical body, and the body can no longer function. It's paralyzed, and then if it doesn't recover, it dies. Dishonesty has the exact same kind of effect in relationships and in the body of Christ. Truth is the foundation of trust. If I don't know who you are and you don't really know who I am, if I'm just projecting who I want you to think I am, then our relationship is on shaky ground. You can't trust me and I can't trust you because you don't know me and I don't know you. So if we're going to work together as the body of Christ, we really need to tell the truth about ourselves to each other. Now, let me be clear. We don't need to know everything about everybody before we can trust. That's impossible. I mean, I, I married my wife over 33 years ago, not knowing everything. Actually, how much I know now, it's like I almost knew nothing. <laughs> but I knew enough to trust her. And so our relationship continues to build as we tell each other the truth. So it's impossible to know everything. That's not required for trust. But what is required is that we need to know enough about each other over time to have reason to believe that the person who is being presented on the outside, that's called our persona, the person we project on the outside, is an accurate and reasonable representation of who really we are on the inside. We're not projecting a lie. We're, we're projecting the truth. And that allows us to trust each other and love each other. So what that means is if we are struggling with something personally, with a sin, our goal is not to hide it. Our goal is not to pretend that everything's okay. That doesn't mean we need to project it to everybody. How are you doing? Oh, you got half an hour? Well, not really. <laughs> That, that's not the goal. The goal is that we are honest with a few, just a handful of people in the church that we can really trust, and we tell them the truth about who we are. And they pray for us, and they're friends to us. The idea is we're not living a secret life. We live an honest and open life. It's essential to really loving each other. And then thirdly, this is the third target, we aim to give and receive scriptural correction. Here's what it says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. I love that double daily. Which day? Today day. Oh, so today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It starts out by saying, see to it. Take action on this. Well, what if you don't see to it? What's going to happen? You're going to eventually have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Oh, no, not, not me. Uh-huh. You. Me. This is the kind of hearts that we have. If we don't take action... Our hearts are in an actual state of decline. 
we actually have the kind of heart that can love someone one moment, and then just a few minutes later, we can hate them. Those of you who are married, you understand this, right? <laughs> this is the person that I love more than anybody else, and this is the person right now I can't stand. That's the kind of hearts we have. We're capable of holding those things right in there, both. Sinful hearts. We have the ability to be really clear about the truth for, for just a moment and then buy a lie hook, line, and sinker and be deceived. So what should we do about that? Should we just crank up our determination? I'm never going to hate another person again. I'm only going to love. I'm never going to believe a lie. I'm only going to believe the truth. We can't do that because it's in our heart. We, we, we don't have the kind of hearts that are capable of self-directed truth and love. What we need is regular encouragement from others. If we're going to pull this off, well, what does that mean? Do you line up for regular pats on the back? Oh, you're great. You're great. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. You know, little pep talks. That's not what the word encouragement means here. The word literally means to come alongside and warn. If you were to do a literal translation of what this word meant in the Greek language, the original language this was written in, it would simply be watch out. So tell each other, watch out. That's what we need. We need people around us to say, watch out. You're believing a lie. Watch out. Your heart's getting hard. If you drive a newer car, you're familiar with this kind of image in your side view mirror, right? It's blind spot monitoring. Now, this is one example of a whole new set of safety features making their way into our cars. And in the past, Vehicle safety focused on crash survival. You know, seat belts first, then crumple zones, and then airbags. But now, thanks to advances in radar technology, the focus is shifting to crash avoidance, not crash survival. Let's avoid the crash in the first place, which is even better. You see, the reason people get into car accidents is because they just don't see everything that's happening around them. And they don't see it in time. And then even if they see it, they don't react in time fast enough. They don't respond to the danger quick enough. Now, the same factor is at play when it comes to relational crashes. We either just don't see what's going on, or if we see it, we don't react properly or in a timely manner. I mean, it's not our intention to go out and just blow up relationships and do all kinds of relational damage any more than it's your intention to run into as many cars on your way home today. You don't intend to get into collisions. We just can't see 360 degrees around us. We've only got two eyes. We can't, we've got blind spots that we can't see. And it's personal blind spots that cause conflicts. It drives conflicts. Now, it would be great if relational technology had been able to keep up with automotive technology. And we could install some kind of relational collision avoidance radar. Wouldn't that be great? I would pay a lot for that. <laughs> you know, those of us that are married, wouldn't it be great to just, you're getting ready to say something, beep, 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 don't say that. <laughs> wouldn't that be helpful? Someone just to break your mouth? <laughs> what was that? Oh, the relational radar took over, and I'm so glad because I was getting ready to say something. It would have been a three-day argument, so we're, I'm just really glad. There, there is... Nothing like that, of course. 
And so when it comes to relationships, we need to rely on a very, very old, but very, very reliable technology. You know what it is? It's called friends. Friends who care enough about us to point out our blind spots before we crash our lives. We need people who care enough about us to warn us. And we need, and here's the hardest part, we need the humility to listen, to invite them to speak correction into our life if we need it. That's really different than the way our world is. You know, in our world, you know what it says? Hey, mind your own business. That's the attitude in our world. Hey, that, that is none of your business. Mind your own business. And it's true, it is our own business. But if we're going to love, we realize that even though it is our own business, we need help minding it. We can't mind it on our own. And we are serious enough about what God says to get help doing it. Right now, in all of our lives, there's probably something that the people close around us can see that we can't see. And they're not saying anything because they know we're not humble enough to hear it. And we think we're doing great, and everyone around us is like, no, not in this area. And we're getting ready for a crash. So if we're going to really love and be in relationships one-on-one that are really helpful, we, we give and receive scriptural correction. And then lastly, if we're going to love, we're going to have to clear up relational messes. We clear up relationships. Why? Because relationships just get broken all the time. They have to be fixed. They have to be cleared up. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 23-24, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is describing a scene that is well known to everyone that would have heard this back 2,000 years ago. It's a scene that played out once a year in Jewish history. It was the annual trip to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to offer your annual tithe to God. This was the pinnacle of the year. And so Jesus is describing a scene where you're standing in line to offer your gift. Now, he doesn't say how far you are in this line and how long the line is and how long you're waiting, but let's just say you've been waiting two hours and you're at the halfway point. If you're needing context, think Disneyland. You're trying to get on cars. It's, it's a four-hour wait. You're two hours into the wait. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, what do you do in line? Well, you daydream, you think, you know, all of a sudden you remember, oh, yeah, on the trip here, me and this other guy, we, we had a relational collision. <laughs> we got into it. And he's probably upset with me because I'm upset with him. And you, you're thinking about this as you're moving in line. And the question is, what should you do about that? Now, most would convince themselves that, oh, it was nothing. If it was something, it was they started it. It was their fault. They're more at blame than I am. And we just keep advancing in line. Now, even if it is my fault, we would say, well, okay, I'll, I'll go talk to them about it. I'll try to clear this up later. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says what you need to do is step out of line and go to this person and reconcile this relationship. Now, that's shocking. I mean, as I read it and put myself in context, my first question is, what, what do I do with my gift? So just leave it there. Really, like, on the ground, in the dirt? I mean, is there, are, is there lockers that I could put it in? So that I don't know. 
But why does Jesus say this? What he's saying is clearing up a relationship, that, that's top priority. Even more than this annual trip of giving your annual tithes to me. And the reason is because the trust that exists between you and another person is way too fragile and way too important to just put it off. When we are wronged, trust is damaged, and it must be repaired. But the good news is, is if the wrong is admitted to, then trust can not only be repaired, it can actually be strengthened. You know, the people I trust the most are the people I've wronged the most, the people who have wronged me the most. Because we've weathered that, and we've reconciled our relationship over and over again. And so I have a trust that I think this relationship is strong and can endure because it has. Now, clearing up relationships always involves two very important steps. Jesus says it this way, go and be reconciled. That's two steps. The first is go. Go where? Go talk to them face-to-face. What do we do usually? What's our first move? We talk about them, not to them. And do we talk about them in front of their face? Oh, no. We talk about them behind their back. It's called gossip. And it just chews up relationships like crazy. Now, the reason we talk about them behind the back is because then we retain all of the editing rights of the story. You know, if you've got kids, you know this. You walk in, what happened? What happened? Were you guys on the same planet? Because this version of events sounds completely different. What what they've done is what we do is you tell the story in such a way to make yourself look better than you really are and them worse than they really are. That doesn't help. You go to that person face to face. That's your best chance at getting at the truth. And then be reconciled. In other words, figure out what's, what's been done, what's, what's the wrong that's been done, fix it if you can, and then ask them to forgive you. What most people do right now, I- if they try anything at all, the most that they will say is, well, I'm sorry. Sorrow is just an emotion, sorrow. That's not reconciling anything. Years ago, um, someone backed into my car in a parking lot. So we both got out of our cars, and this person looked at my smashed bumper and looked at me and said, oh, man, I'm really sorry. And then they got in their car and started driving away. (laughs) And I ran up and said, wait, 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 wait. We've got to exchange information. Sorry isn't going to cut it. i got a smashed bumper. Money needs to exchange hands for my bumper to be reconciled. Sorry is not a magic word that makes problems disappear. The damage needs to be fixed. Now, often, honestly, when it comes to relational damage, you really can't completely fix it. You can't get it back to new. There's some things that are said that can't be unsaid. There's some things that are done that just can't be undone, and the hurt's just going to be there. But no matter how bad it is, it can always be forgiven. Even if it can't be fixed and made whole, it can be forgiven. So ask them to forgive you. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, if I offended you, I'm sorry. The translation for that is if you're such a small person that you would be offended (laughs) at something as insignificant as this, well, then, sorry. Well, now you got a bigger problem. you got two things to reconcile, what you did wrong and the way you tried to apologize. See, when you ask someone to forgive you, you're admitting that there is an objective standard that is bigger than either of you. That is critical to understand. A truth that you have violated and now must admit to. 
And that's important because trust, it turns out, doesn't float in midair. It requires a foundation that's solid, that doesn't move, that is bigger than either of you. And if someone will not admit the wrong that they have done, then you cannot stand on the same solid ground together with them because their own standard of right and wrong floats. They're floating in moral midair. They make up their own rules. And they, they, therefore, they can't be trusted. They keep changing what is right and wrong based on what they want. This is why it's so important to say the words, would you forgive me for this and say what it is? What you're saying is, I did wrong. And the reason I know what I did was wrong is because God in his word has told me this is wrong. And that's the foundation I'm standing on. Now we can trust each other. So our mission is thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. And that transformation is demonstrated, first of all, in the way we relate to one another, the quality of relationship that we offer to each other. And that requires real courageous love, not just warm feelings of love that come and go. So we aim at these four targets. We don't always hit, but we keep aiming. We aim to put the goals and interests of others above my own. Not all the time, not 24-7 but often. And we aim to live an honest and open life. Not tell everyone everything, but tell a few trusted people the truth about who we are. And then we aim to give and receive scriptural correction because we all have blind spots. And then we aim to clear up relationships because we all do damage. This is what courageous love looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity that your word brings to what love really is. We know we live in a time and therefore influenced by our culture about what love is. And we, to various degrees, have bought the lie that if we don't feel loving, then we aren't loving. But you have defined it very clearly and what it looks like. And I pray that you'd give us clarity in our one-on-one relationships, both in this church and with those outside this church. Give us understanding about maybe which target we need to aim at come Monday morning and with who, how we need to practically love. May we grow in our love for you and for each other. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.